Okay, so we are still doing the silver chair. What can you tell me about the silver chair? Well, who wrote it? Okay. What's important about him? Why is why do we care? Okay, yes, he does write that's not all that he writes. He also writes serious theological books as well. Um, and by his own definition, he says these are not allegories. But I would say that sometimes it's not up to the author if something is allegorical. Um, because I think that God has used it as an allegory, whether that was his intention or not. Um, so he is a Christian, and he lived during, um, he fought in World War I, and he lived during World War II. Um, and so he writes in, well, I don't think any of you were born in the 20th century, were you? You're all 21st century. But he wrote in the last century, so he's, he's fairly recent as far as great authors. Um, and when, when does the silver chair take place, do you know? Not in Narnia, I guess. In our world, where Jill and Eustace, our main characters, live. What country? Okay, it's in England. Yes, it's in the first line of the wardrobe, they left to go somewhere. Right. Because London is being bombed by the German army, right? Yes, so this is just after World War II is when this takes place, probably like three or four years. Um, so think of like late 40s, early 50s is when it takes place. And Jill and Eustace go to what kind of a school? Yes, it's a boarding school that you live at. What else is different about this school? Yes, tolerance, right? And they don't like, they don't encourage the Bible that way? 
yes, they don't teach the Bible, is I think specifically what he talks about. This is, this is a little bit of C.S. Lewis's comment on modern education at the time. And it still is very applicable today because it's still an issue, right? They talk all about tolerance and everyone can do their own thing and be who they are, except for what's the problem with that that we find out in the first couple pages of the book. Right, and the teachers don't care because what don't they ascribe to? Yes, that's good, um, but um, morals, right? Or or very simply rules, right? They don't ha really have rules and definitely not backed up by the Bible there at the school. Um, so they are seeking to escape, seeking for to be rescued from that. And what do Jill, Eustace tells Jill about Narnia and says maybe we could escape there. And who do they call on? Aslan, they say his name. And um, he doesn't whisk them away right then, but then they have to run off and then they try a door and suddenly find themselves in Narnia. Um, what is, Eustace, as we know, falls off a cliff and then the lion, which is, we find out later, is Aslan, blows him on his breath to Narnia. And then Jill receives what? The signs. She's given four signs for what? Because Jill says, I thought, she says, please, sir, I thought we called, or we called you to bring us to Narnia. And he says, what does Aslan say? Why are they there? Think about any time anyone goes to Narnia, why are they there? Narnia is true. Yes, so they are there to do what? Huh? Yes, they do learn through doing things. But why? What's their main reason to be there? Yes, so they have a mission, right? You think of the four Pevensons, Peter, Lucy, and Susan, and Edmund. Why are they there? Yeah, there's a prophecy about them that they're going to come and set things right. Why um, did then the four Pevensons return to Narnia and Prince Caspian? Why are they there? Because Prince Caspian was, well, they attempted to kill, they attempted to kill Prince Caspian. They were not, right? He ran away. Right. Narnia is in captivity of, by another race, right? Another, another race of men or a na nation. Caspian is supposed to be the right 
evil king and they're there to fix that. They're there to help set things right. Why are Edmund, Lucy, and Eustace called to Narnia and the Dawn Shredder? Well, they're on a mission, right? Caspian, it... it the seven lords, right? Yeah. And it's that one is really not a a very straightforward mission, right? They're trying to figure out all along the way exactly how they're going to help Caspian, right? Caspian has a very direct mission, but they don't know exactly what their goal is when they're there. And now this one is the first time where Aslan at the very beginning says, "This is what you are here to do." He's never done that before. They always had to figure it out along the way. He get and he gives them four signs. He says, "These are the four things to look for. You're all set." Except for what are they? What's how do things go awry from there? Okay. Yeah, he's kind of downplaying it, right? He because he's been there before. He's like he's a little um, sitting on his high horse a bit. Like you don't know anything about Narnia, or and, and he does. She says you should learn the signs too. And what does he say? It's not my job. Not my job. Not not a good thing, right? To say, although. That's something that we say to ourselves a lot, don't we? All right. Um, <clears throat> so they go, they get their mission. We can't review everything. So who else do they pick up along their way for their journey? Puddle Glum. What do you know about Puddle Glum? He's a marshmallow. What else about him? Yes, what does sober mean? Other than not being under the influence. He has his senses. Okay. How about wits about him? Oh, sorry. What does that mean? If you have your wits about you. What are your wits to start with? Paying attention, yep. If someone makes a witty comment, what is that? Smart is good. It's usually but not like there's very smart people who are not witty though. They're very dull actually, sometimes. What's the wittiness? What's another thing you could add to that? Maybe it's clever. It's usually if you make a witty comment, it's also timely. Like it fits that moment. Okay. So Puddle Glum, in general, he has experience. Um, he is also loyal. Very important. Watchful. 
What else? I think maybe only Gideon was here for this. What else do we know about him when they miss the third sign and they're standing right in the middle of the letters? He thinks that they should explore and think about it a little more. Mm -hmm. But they don't listen to him because they're ready to get to wherever they're going. But they want to get to Harfang, right? But he doesn't assert his opinion. He Why? He's right. He's absolutely right. Why doesn't he? It's not his mission, so they know better about it than he does. Right. The mission belongs to Jill and Eustace. It is not Puddleglums. He is there just to help. He's in a servant's position. And he's very meek. He's humble, right? You don't ever hear him boast about himself. If anything, he says things like, other Marshfriggles should say I should be more light and happy. Or I'm too light and happy that I need to be more grounded. <laughs> right? Which he is, he is extremely grounded, right? He thinks of every worst possible thing. And I heard... I was actually listening today to somebody was talking about um, who they think that C.S. Lewis based Puddleglum on was he had a gardener for his house. And when he and his wife, Joy, were about to go on a plane trip, um, this gardener of his was seeing them off. And just as they were getting in the car and he was putting the bags in, he said, he said, uh, sir, or whatever he called C.S. Lewis, he said, did you see today that a plane, it blew up, burnt up, absolutely everybody died. Everyone was dead, just burnt up. You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't, you just wouldn't believe it. Have a good trip. <laughs> so he's telling them, you know, he's always aware of all the possibilities. So it was just a funny little tidbit of that, how he pulled that from his own life of somebody that he obviously respected and was very loyal, and he pulled that little personality and put it into the book. Um, in Puddleglum, at first, you think he's weird, right? He's odd, a little bit funny, but you don't think of him as... Um, I. How about indispensable? Do you know what indispensable means? He, they can't get like valuable. Like he, he can't go on the story without. Yes, you have to have them. Dispensable means you can throw it away. You have oh, almost you. I maybe I don't know if it's a synonym, but it might be. It's at least linked, like disposable, right? A pen is dispensable. You can get rid of it. You can get another one, right? They're all the same. Or you can, you get, um, like, I don't know, rubber gloves are dispensed to you, and then you can just get rid of it. You don't, you don't need to keep them. They're a dime a dozen. 
Well, he is not. They're going to find that they could not do this without him. And you will find people like that in your life that are friends to hold on to, to not let slip away. So, all right, we're going to jump past Harfang because we need all the time we can now. And they are now in the underworld. What does the underworld represent? They're down there, they meet this gloomy guy who says, he keeps saying over and over, close. Yes, many have come down and few have returned to the sunlit lands. So what is the underworld? Okay. It's okay. Okay. We're closer. Yes, closer. I it is people that can also be true, but it's people who have succumbed to sin that has taken over them, that they are hopeless or nearly hopeless, okay? And those people that are down in there, there isn't an escape except for they need somebody to come to their aid to help them. Alright, it's hopeless without aid to escape. And that's why we see Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum going down there, although they're totally, they know that they have to go there to find the prince, but they're not totally aware of this until hindsight comes. Um, now, we have the, they finally, then they meet the prince after their long journey. What is prince like? Okay, he's all over the place, right? He he's loony, loopy, creepy. He is very loyal to the queen, right? So much so that he gets he almost kills who is it, Eustace, for saying something about that he perceives as bad about her, which is true. I mean, she is bad. So, um, one thing though is he has no idea what is real, right? He is living in this false world, this where he has taken in all the lies of the lady of the green kirtle and believes them, right? They, add, they talk to him about some things and he's like, Narnia, what is this world? Like he, he doesn't even know what it is. He's under this spell, okay? Now, then they put him in the chair. And he says it's because he goes raving mad at night. What, what is the chair? It's 
Yes. Okay. So what do you think that is? If Narnia, right, is an allegory, it is represents spiritual things, right? Anytime they're in Narnia, that's the spiritual world. So what is the chair? It helps that you've seen the whole movie. Let's ask you this. Let's start back at the beginning. How did he get to this point? To the point that he is at now when they meet him and he is has to be put in this chair every night. He, his mother was killed by a snake. Okay. And then he tried to kill the snake and he found a pretty lady and then they left and went to <laughs> Okay, he was deceived. Why was he able to be deceived? Because he's a good kid, right? He was sad about his mother dying. Okay. So, does that mean that sadness is bad? He was vulnerable. He was vulnerable. Very good. Okay. Well, we're getting somewhere now. So, what causes him... What does he what is he tempted by? What's he looking for? What does he not want in his life at that moment? That guy, right, who came with him. He does threaten what he, what he's gaining by um associating himself with the lady of the green kernel. What is he getting that he needs? His mother died. He's sad. What is he getting? What do you what do you want when you're sad? I need like someone to take care of me. You know, like in the lady of the green curl. Okay, so maybe he wants somebody to fill that role. What else might you want? If you're unhappy, if you have grief, if you're feeling depressed, what do you not want? Or what do you want instead? Probably don't want to feel that way, right? Yeah. Maybe you want to just shut that kind of stuff out. You want to just not think about it. You want to become, maybe you want to become numb to it. Or maybe you want to be so busy and fill that time with other things that maybe happy things where you're going a mile a minute that you're not thinking about that either. Okay. This is just one example. So what do we see? And this is getting into stuff that maybe you you haven't thought about before but why do you think well i'm not going to go there yet so i'm just going to tell you what the chair is then and then we'll go there so the chair is 
addiction. What do you think of when I say addiction? Drugs and alcohol, right? That's what you are taught to think when you hear the word addiction. But it's not necessarily anything that you can't control yourself with. You can't really part with Okay. This is true. So... <clears throat> A lot of times when people do turn to your traditional things that you think of for addiction, alcohol, drugs, um, how about going another to another one like gambling? Or maybe you hear, hear people say stuff like, I'm a shopaholic. Or I am a workaholic. Yeah, that's a good one too. There, all, all these kinds of things. I've even heard people say that have actually said, I needed something to be addicted to. So that's why I do this. Weird, right? Yeah. That sounds weird, okay? But people choose to do that stuff. A lot of times they're trying to avoid something. They want to avoid dealing with something. They want to, because doing the right thing or solving a problem in your life, it's easier just to not do it right, to ignore it or to put something else in its place to fill that void that you have with something else. And as Christians, we know that like the ultimate void that you have in, in your life that everyone's born with that you want purpose and you want to be to know and be known. Do you know what I mean by saying you want to know and be known? Okay, yes. Yeah, like fame aspect. Some people use fame to fill that void, right? To fill that desire. But what you really want, that to know and to be known, that's, that's how you would describe a friendship, right? Or a relationship mm -hmm. with someone. Um, one of the closest ones that you can have is marriage, right? People try to... to um, to do a shortcut of that all the time, right? People have relationships, they have sex outside of marriage because they don't want the commitment. They try to get what they would get out of that relationship without actually having to do all the hard parts of it, right? Of actually, if you have a fight or an argument or disagreement, actually solve it and become an agreement on something they'd rather just when that happens say throw it away i'll get the other good stuff that i want from somebody else then so you can be know and be known with close friends best friends in marriage 
in your relationship with your mother, your father, your grandparents, those things can be great, but all of those will leave you lacking in the end because nobody's perfect, right? In the end, Jesus is the one who can ultimately know every part of you and that you can know him that can fulfill you the most, all right? And that's not to say that there aren't other needs out there that you have. And God will fill them through other things. Like he can give you and lead you to a spouse. He can even give you, you may have heard people, if, you, if you've paid attention sometimes in, um, even in our church when people share stuff, sometimes people will say stuff like, this person at church is the grandparent I never had. Or this is the, or things like that because they had broken families and then by coming to church, by God leading them there, they found somebody else to fulfill that kind of a role. So it's not always that God fills that role directly here on earth, but he'll give you something to fill that through his plan for you. So... We start, I say all that to say that the chair is this trying to fill the void and it becoming an addiction because you, it's an easy way to fill that need that you have instead of going about it the right way. So, how then is he, does he escape that addiction? How is he going to escape it? How can he get out of the chair? Right, we have we have the chair, and he's in the chair. Oh, we should put. And he asks for help from his friends, but mostly from God, and he knows that because he says, um, like in the name of Aslan, you know, like he right. Okay, he good. He asks. To, like he, he needs God's help and help from his friends too. Okay. Help. Uh, you're right. I want to focus first on the help from the friends. The answer is you say friends. I mean, not necessarily like besties, but like. Well, they could people, be. And they could be, but like just people um, around. Are all friends going to be a good help? No. Okay, what kind of friends? What makes a good friend? There's one key component. Christians, yeah. So the real answer, how is he going to escape the church? Right? That God gave us the body of Christ, which is the church, because we're there to support and help each other and be on a mission, right? So let's go, I, well, I can't have you go there, but I'm going to go to chapter 11 in the silver chair, and I want to read you that section of where um, he's just been put in the chair, and Puddleglum and Jill and Scrub are all in his chambers in the other room, and they have now decided, okay, we, and this is Puddleglum's wisdom, he says, because Jill says, I don't want to go see that whatever's going to happen with his craziness. And Puddleglum says, no, we, we need to go watch that. 
So this is them now. Um, they've entered the room and Rillian has told them to come in. And this is what, and he's told them, whatever you do, don't loose me. I will be crazy and try to convince you. And that's where we pick up. This is Puddleglum talking. There's no fear of losing you, said Puddleglum. We've no wish to meet wild men or serpents either. I should think not, said Scrub and, sorry, and Jill together. All the same, added Puddleglum in a whisper. Don't let's be too sure. Let's keep our guard. We've muffed everything else, you know. He'll be cunning, I shouldn't wonder. Once he gets started, can we trust one another? Do we all promise that whatever he says, we don't touch those cords? Whatever he says, mind you. Rather, said Scrub, there's nothing in the world he can say that'll do or, or do that'll make me change my mind, said Jill. Hush, something's happening, said Puddleglum. The knight was moaning. His face was pale as putty, and he writhed in his bonds. And whether because she was sorry for him or some other reason, Jill thought that he looked a nicer sort of man that he had, than he had looked before. Ah, he groaned. Enchantments, enchantments. The heavy, tangled, cold, clammy web of evil magic, buried alive, dragged down under the earth, down into the sooty blackness. How many years is it? Have I lived ten years or a thousand years in the pit? Maggot men, all around me. Oh, have mercy, let me out, let me go back. Let me feel the wind and see the sky. There used to be a little pool. When you looked down into it, you could see all the trees growing upside down in the water, all green, and below them deep, very deep, the blue sky. He had been speaking in a low voice. Now he looked up, his eyes fixed upon them, and he said loud and clear, Quick, I am sane now. Every night I am sane. If only you could get me out of this enchanted chair. It would last. I should be a man again. But every night they bind me. And so every night my chance is gone. But you are not enemies. I am not your prisoner. Quick, cut these cords. Stand fast, steady, said Petalglum to the two children. I beseech you to hear me, said the knight, forcing himself to speak calmly. Have they told you that I am, if I am released from this chair, I shall kill you and become a serpent? I see by your faces that they have. It is a lie. It is at this hour that I am in my right mind. It is all the rest of the day that I am enchanted. You are not earthmen nor witches. Why should you be on their side? Of your courtesy, cut my bonds. Steady, 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 said the three travelers to one another. Oh, you have hearts of stone, said the knight. Believe me, you can look upon a wretch who has suffered almost more than any mortal heart can bear. What wrong have I ever done you, that you should side with my enemies to keep me in such miseries? And the minutes are slipping past. Now you can save me. When this hour has passed, I shall be witless again. The toy and the lapdog, nay, more likely the pawn and the tool of the most devilish sorceress that's ever planned the woe of men. And this night, of all nights, when she is away, you take me a chance that you... You take from me a chance that may never come again. This is dreadful. I do wish we had stayed away till it was all over, said Jill. Steady, said Pubblegum. The prisoner's voice was now rising into a streak. 
Let me go, I say, give me my sword, my sword. Once I am free, I shall take such revenge on the earthmen that this underland shall talk of it for a thousand years. Now the frenzy is beginning, said Scrub. I hope those knots are all right. Yes, said Puddleglum. He'd have twice his natural strength if he got free now. And I'm not clever with my sword. He'd get us both, I shouldn't wonder. And Pole, on her own, be left to tackle the snake. The prisoner was now so... Tra straining at his bonds that they cut into his wrists and ankles. Beware, he said, beware. One night I did break them, but the witch was here that time. You will ha not have her to help you tonight. Free me now, and I am your friend. I'm your mortal enemy else. Cunning, isn't he, said Puddleglum. Once and for all, said the prisoner, I adjure you to set me free. By all fears, all loves, by the bright skies of Overland, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. Oh, cried the three travelers as though they'd been hurt. It's the sign, said Puddleglum. It's the words of the sign, said Scrub more cautiously. Oh, what are we to do, said Jill. It was a dreadful question. What had been the point of promising one another that they would not on any account set the night free? If they were now to do so, the first time he happened to call upon the name they really cared about, on the other hand, what would have been the use of learning the signs if they weren't going to obey them? Yet Aslan, oh, yet could Aslan have really meant them to unbind anyone, even a lunatic? Who asked it in his, who asked it in his name? Could it be a mere accident? Or how if the queen of the overland knew all about the signs and had made the knight learn this name simply in order to entrap them? But then supposing this was the real sign, they had muffed three already, they daren't muff the fourth. Oh, if we only knew, said you. Jill, I think we do know, says Puddlegum. Do you mean you think everything will come right if we do untie him, said Scrub? I don't know about that, said Puddlegum. You see, Aslan didn't tell Pole what would happen. He only told her what to do. That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, I shouldn't wonder. But that doesn't let us off following the sign. They all stood looking at one another with bright eyes. It was a sickening moment. All right, said Jill. Let's get it over. Goodbye, everyone. They all shook hands. The knight was screaming by now. There was foam on his cheeks. Come on, Scrub, said Pogum. He and Scrub drew their swords and went over to the captive. In the name of Aslan, they said, and methodically cutting the cords. The instant the prisoner was free, he crossed the room in a single bound, seized in his own sword, which had been taken from him, and laid on the table, and he drew it. Okay, you know what happens after that? He destroys the chair with his sword. <clears throat> so, we're going to change perspectives, because we've been talking about his addiction, but I want to briefly talk about now what we just watched Puddle Glum, well, listen to Puddle Glum, Jill and Scrub go through. Um, Puddle Glum says that they need to watch it. What is Jill's reaction, or what is her thoughts when they're deciding whether they should watch it? Do you remember? Yeah, she doesn't want to, it, it irks her to have to think and watch that. So, 
How many times do we avoid a struggle or uncomfortable things? <laughs> and we put that aside. We have to put that aside to do the right thing. This made me um, ashamedly think of an instance for myself. In Georgia, we used to have like... Um, Bible camp, uh, similar to our youth retreat, but it was a whole week long, and they probably had 30 teens or so. And this one, he came every year, and he came to the regular youth group. He was local, um, and he was one of those kids who really didn't shower, didn't wear deodorant, just... One of those kind of guys. And I was one of the counselors for the cabin there that week. And he had, he was also, him and his brother, they lived with their grandma. They didn't come from a very good background. And he didn't bring a lot of clothes with him that year. And probably because he didn't have a lot of clothes, honestly. And he, all his clothes were wet because it was a whole week and you're, there was a pond and we were just doing stuff and I think it had been raining that day. And he was at, he at, was asking for a shirt from somebody that he wanted to drive shirt. And admittedly, he was not my size. He was probably an extra large and I, or maybe he was an XXL and I was large. So I knew my shirt wasn't going to fit him. And he asked directly, because nobody was answering, asked me directly, said, can I borrow one of your shirts? And I really, and it was one of those things where as soon as I said no, I felt guilty right away. And somebody else ended up giving him a shirt. So he had one in the end. But it sounds like a dumb instance, but it's something that, I don't want to say I think about all the time, but it's something that I have thought of before and I regret that I wish that I had just given him a shirt, even though it wasn't going to fit him. He could have tried it on and found out it didn't fit and then didn't wear it. What would have the harm have been, right? And <clears throat> I just say that to say that I don't want to be like Jill. We don't want to be like her and say, that's something that's uncomfortable. It bothers me. Instead, just do it. You know, do the right thing, even if it's uncomfortable. So they do with Puddle Glum's advice and his prodding. They go and they do it. And we have Rillian who is trying to get free because... He is, for the, for the first time that they've seen him, he's thinking clearly, right? And, <clears throat> but because of his addiction, he is captive in the chair. He is crippled by the chair where he's unable to do it. And we talked a little bit about this, but I was thinking of some other things that are not what you typically think of with addiction. And... How about 
the, have you ever thought that maybe you could be addicted to anger? Have you ever been angry and it felt good to be angry? It can feel good, right? You feel like, I don't even know how to describe it, but I have felt that before where you, it feels good in the moment to yell at somebody or it feels good to uh, trash your room or to throw something because you're angry. And you think, well, that's not a big deal. Like, even if you're just angry by yourself. But who do you think about who sees the worst of your anger? Is it a random person in the grocery store that sees the worst of your anger? Probably not. Probably your family members, people that you're close to. So what does that then do to your relationships with those people? I mean, it's not good, right? But I mean, we don't have to say exactly, but it definitely cripples those relationships, right? So. It's just thinking, trying to think of being addicted to something or allowing a sin to take over that it can bind you. That's one other one. I mentioned a little bit of this, but we've talked before about lust of the flesh. Okay. Which essentially is, I want this and I want it now. Whatever your physical like desire is and one of those is a lot of times we just want physical things I want a new phone or I want that new video game or I want that movie I'm just gonna buy that movie to watch it or I want I don't know whatever it is you might I want that hoodie that's the hoodie that I want even though I have all the ones I want, I want that new hoodie or those new shoes or whatever. And you guys probably, I hope you don't experience this, but there is something that is more and more um, encouraged and out there in the culture that if you don't have the money, just use a credit card or just four easy payments. Buy it, and then you can do four easy payments of $22 over the next three months, four months. Not a big deal, and you can have it right now. What's the problem with that? Even if you do use it. Even if you do use it, you don't have that time you save up for it. Okay, that would be a good thing to learn. But how about this? If you owe someone something, 
you owe it to them, what do they have over you? They have power over you. If you don't pay your credit card bill or if you don't pay your loan, they can take you to court. They can hold it over you. It doesn't go away. And so much so that you are essentially enslaved to them. You owe them. Have you ever heard of an indentured servant? What is that? Yes, you are working to pay off a debt for someone. And a lot of times what would happen is parents would earn up, would have so much debt that they owed to someone that they couldn't, didn't have anymore. And the debtor would say, well, you have that 12 year old boy. He can do a lot of work that could pay off that debt for me. And that they would become an indentured servant or people would willingly even say, I'll just become your servant because I don't have any money. So it sounds excessive, but the principle is still there. And even the Bible in Proverbs says the debtor is slave to the lender. So it's just, it's something to think about to that different, they seem like little things, but these, but things like that can then cripple you with what you're able to do. If you owe a lot of money for things that you just wanted. Now there's times where there are things that you need and people get into bad situations, but most of the things in America where people are in debt, it's not for something that they needed, for something that they wanted. And that cripples you in your ability to do other things, whether it means that you have to work more and you can't do other things, but it cripples your decisions and what you can do with your life and how God is able to use you. So he is captive to his own sin, addicted to this rebellion against God's way. <clears throat> Finally, though, in his rantings, he says the unimaginable that he says in the name of Aslan. And we get three reactions from our characters. Jill's reaction is... What does she say? Nope. That's what Puddleglum says. We'll get to his last. Jill says, what are we going to do, essentially? And really, she, if, if you delve into it and what her character is, like what you've seen from her in the past, she is, I know in my heart what's right, but... I really don't want it to be that because I don't want to have to do that. Eustace says, which, yeah, it's a little embarrassing for Eustace looking back, right? After all that he's gone through, we know his backstory. He says, it's just the words. It's not the real thing. It's a, it's fake. He is using reason to convince himself that he doesn't have to do it. Puddleglum, good old Puddleglum, right? He says, it's the sign, 
And then after they say their stuff, he says, we know we have to do it. We know it. We know what we have to do. And his is essentially what he's saying, if we take it to apply it to our lives, is follow Jesus no matter the cost. Because that's what he goes through. He says, I know he's probably going to, I'm no good with a sword. Scrub's just a boy. He'll kill us both. And then Jill will have to fight the serpent. Right? He goes, even still, he, in this intense moment, he's thinking of all the outcomes, but he says, even if that's the case, I'd rather do that and do the right thing. Powerful poem he is. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I know you will come across situations eventually. But I've been in situations where doing the right thing sometimes almost doesn't feel right except that you know from the Bible and from what you learn is that it's the right thing. Because everybody else around you, even your family, may condemn it as the wrong thing. As not... The, the, the not thinking about the family or not thinking about what's best for everybody or, what, or whatever it might be. But <clears throat> in the end, because of making the correct decision, it'll probably get harder. And... The thing is, though, that God will bless that. When you make a decision for him, make a decision to do the right thing, even though it'll, it may get harder for a while, it may be harder with that person or that situation for a long time, there will be blessings that come along with it. And you know what? You're not going to be haunted with the guilt of not doing the right thing. Because remember, they all have that. They've talked about all three signs. A couple times they say, we messed up those three signs, but we're not going to do that this time. We're going to do the right thing this time. So now when they decide it is already so much better, because before they even unloose him, just them saying, nope, we're going to do the right thing, that they're ready fully into it and just say, this is, let's go ahead and loose him. You can almost feel the relief of them doing the actual right task. So they free him and they've given him the friendship that he, that someone often needs to fight against that addiction. And now that they have someone to fight with them and fighting addiction, whatever it might be, a lot of times you need somebody else to know about that you need that accountability the support of another brother and sister in christ even though you might have to do all the all of the actual work like physical work or a lot of the even mental work having that support gives you the strength to do that and there is a part um there's always a part where you have to do it all yourself, but alone you cannot do it. 
I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 and go to verse 19. We're going to read 19 and 20 here quickly. Matthew 18, verse 19 and 20. <clears throat> Whenever whoever gets there first, go ahead and read. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there Okay, you've heard that before? Okay. There have been, it, this is Jesus saying that if there are two or three of you, that's all it takes, just two of you to be in agreement and to be in prayer asking for my help, that's all it takes. That there's more strength in two of you than one. Uh, Proverbs also says that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. It's stronger than just one of you. There have been, um, just quick here, many times where we, as your youth group leaders, that the four of us, sometimes even on youth retreats or whatever it might be, we'll just be like, I don't know. We, what are we going to do? And Probably it should be more often. We could always do more. But one, somebody will say, well, we just need to pray about it. And we'll pray about it. And even sometimes it's as short as like one or two sentences. And after that, you can feel a relief. And I cannot tell you the amount of times where God has just worked that out. Whether it was that day, that hour. Sometimes it's not for years that it doesn't get worked out. But... You, but coming together and working together towards God's plan and asking for the help makes all the difference. And this is, we see this with them. They're, cry, they're calling on the name of Aslan and they cut his bonds in the name of Aslan. So the last thing, I'm sorry, we're on the running late here, but Psalm chapter 20. <clears throat> I'm just going to, I will read this. You can follow along. Um, but I'm going to pick out a few things and point them out to you as we read this. Um, okay. Starting in verse 1. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble. In the name of the God of Jacob, defend thee. Okay, so there in the name of God is the defense. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in the salvation and in the name of our God. And we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Rejoice in salvation of Jesus, that he's your banner over you, his name, and that he will fulfill everything that you ask there. Verse 6, now know that I, the Lord, saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with saving strength of his right hand. 
So Aslan anointed Jill and Eustace. He heard them from his high place right in Aslan's country. And say, even though they were way down deep in the earth, and he saved them with the strength of his right hand. Verse 7, set some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God as they brought as they are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, let the king hear us when we call. Aslan heard when they, when they called on him, gave them strength, saw them through it. Even the, they are the farthest anyone has ever been from Aslan, from Narnia, in the whole series, this is the farthest anyone's ever been. Dark in a way, not even the sun pierces them. And Aslan is still there, despite all that, to help them. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't always seem it until you look back, until you see the hindsight. And sometimes we can... Um, we can see him more and we can see how he's affecting things when we remember the signs. They lost their way for a while because they were not, as we know, represent in the allegory sense, they weren't in the Bible. They weren't thinking about it. They didn't have God on their mind constantly. And they missed a bunch of things, right? So, um, this isn't the end yet of them needing to call on Aslan. I mean, you've already seen the movie, so you know. But this is only the beginning here. And they're still in danger. Rillian has crushed the addiction. He destroys it with his sword, but they're still in the underworld. They're still surrounded by the temptations and the devil or the lady of the green kirtle is about to try to regain what she has lost. And in, oftentimes in that great victory that you have over something, especially with addictions, that's when the devil is going to try to hit you even harder than before. Okay, so next week we're going to look at that part, and it's really besides this that we looked at here, it is the next, if not the better, moment of the entire book. All right, thank you very much, guys. Have a good week.